At the end of your life, what will be your legacy? What will you leave behind for future generations? For the world, join the world messenger, Isabella Lundberg, each week as she brings you a new distinguished guest from the business, sports, or entertainment world to share their success, their struggles, and their lessons. They will share their insights into current hot topics that affect everyone. Isabella facilitates an intimate, vulnerable environment to find the true value of humanity and real leadership. Are you ready for your legacy? The legacy that matters? Hello, hello, my global friends. It's Isabella Lundbeckere, the world messenger, and welcome you to the Legacy Leader Show. Today, I have a very special guest joining us from bright, sunny Los Angeles, California. He is known for his acting roles as a very, very bad boy, from TV series NipTech, CSI Miami, Criminal Minds, to full feature movies such as Death Race, In Hell, Out of Justice, Boot Tracks, Parlor, and most recently, The Mule. Obviously, many more movies are there, more than we can even count. He acted along the big names such as Forrest Whitaker, Steven Seagal, Jason Statham, Clint Eastwood, Therese Gibson, Michelle Monaghan, William Dafoe, and so many more. And he's my favorite good guy that is playing so well the bad guy. Can you guys guess? Please welcome Robert Lissardo. Robert, how are you? Well, well, thank you for having me on your show, Isabel. Absolutely. It's absolute pleasure. So with, I'm sure, anticipation with everything you accomplished thus far, every story starts from very, very beginning. Do you mind sharing those early beginnings of your life with audience so they can really understand where you came from, where you've been raised, where did you grow up, and then how did you get where you're at today? Well, what occurs to me, the first place that I can see is a movie theater. I see myself as a young boy sitting in a movie theater and feeling a sense of uh, peace, a sense of sanctuary, and uh, escaping into a world that helped me feel that the life I was living wasn't a total hell. Wow, that is powerful. Seems like you're seeing that hell so you can compare and contrast. Well, I think imagination is key, isn't it? For most people who recognize the power of that. Um, children especially, I think, can utilize that gift, that ability in a crisis and invented a, a a different world than the one the world that they're living in imposes on them and i did that and so i think movies especially you know the timeline i grew up in the 60s and 70s the movie theaters were quite large and the screens were enormous and it was very easy to be, in, be enveloped uh by the spectacle of the screen you know and what it suggested very powerful uh, and so that's where I see myself for the first time being influenced by uh, a medium that, without me knowing, that ultimately would be a saving grace for me, that would change my life, ultimately save my life, and be a situation of catharsis where I could work through a lot of the difficulties that I acquired 
or accumulated through my younger life. Wow, that is so powerful. So it seems like you are alluding that a lot of times movies and theater early on were escape for you, escape from different realities that were maybe painful and challenging. Uh, and at the same time allowed your mind to wonder and create different realities and left so much impression. And then because of those experiences you had early on, also allowed you to actually be so successful and expressive and capable to be phenomenal in all these diverse roles that you play. Is it true to say? Absolutely, yes. The, the films leave an impression, at least they did with me, they leave a profound impression in the psyche. Mm -hmm. you know? And I, my film knowledge is vast because I had a great appetite for escapism. It wasn't like I was trying to win a prize or come off sounding like the most knowledgeable film guy in the world. I'm not the most knowledgeable film guy, but I feel and suspect that my, my memory bank houses a lot of uh, information because I needed it. Uh, it, was, it was an emotional type of experience, but I didn't know that as I was experiencing the fantasies and escaping through various um, mythologies, et cetera, that I was also being given a, a kind of a, being taught a course in comprehensive film history because I watched many different types of movies throughout the years. And so later on in life, when those experiences met an acting class, a teacher, um, there was a lot of reference material in terms of what I witnessed within the frame, the art form, the cinematography, the style of acting, the genre of films or film, the type, you know, all that. So I didn't realize how effective that knowledge would be once applied to the craft or the business aspect. Uh, maybe not so much the business aspect. I won't even say that. I'll retract that. More along the lines of the creative exploration, what I witnessed actors and various people that I found their performances and their incarnation of character to be extremely profound, so much so that I think unconsciously, I think we all do this, I borrowed from a lot of that, the style that is in my, my work. That's beautiful to be also open to learn from others and also see different, uh, different again, styles and personalities and grow with that, and which means that you're a lifelong learner, which is brilliant. A lot of uh, people that usually get stuck in uh, or pigeonholed in one specific area or genre or style uh, get obsolete and outdated. And then right now, I think that really shows every performance you did is so different from one another and is definitely showing over the years this vast expansion. But if you don't mind just sharing with the audience, where did you originally grow up? Uh, I grew up in Brooklyn, New York City. Wow. I was born in Coney Island. I was born... The body came into this world in a place called uh, Brooklyn. The hospital is called the Coney, Coney Island Hospital, Brooklyn, New York. I say Coney, I emphasize Coney Island not to be uh, silly, but because Coney Island uh, back in the old days, the 50s, 40s, and up and even to the 60s was, a, was indicative of uh, an amusement uh, area, a place of uh, 
comparable to, uh, I don't know, the Poconos or maybe uh, the Grand, not, I wouldn't say the Grand Canyon, um, Niagara Falls. It was a resort in the 50s. Steeplechase Park, Coney Island, um, a vast uh, space of rides and themes that provided Americans back in that time to escape because of the, the war, or any, any number of things that were going on, kind of like how theme parks now are celebrated, they're much more high tech, and movies are clearly a, uh, probably the biggest form of escape, escapism for most people. Prior to film, the you know film being the number one, people would go to these theme parks and escape into these magical worlds. And um, Coney Island for me was a place to go as a child that um, provided that fantasy in in a tangible form. And uh, so it, I think it's kind of us ironic that I was born in Coney Island Hospital and then would have a great affection for the neighboring uh, amusement park that allowed me to disappear into all sorts of wonderful worlds that carpenters and visionary uh, 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 architects constructed under the guise of creating a fantasy land for children and adults, much like Disneyland and you know uh, Six Flags. This is way before all that even materialized. Around the time it was starting, I think Disneyland was probably uh, not that long in the future after that. But prior to that, I think there was steeplechase for in Brooklyn, in Coney Island. So, Thank you for sharing this very, very, very absolutely. But this is awesome because I didn't have a no idea, obviously. And it's very nice to know the historic attributes uh, because during that era was a, a big, huge boom of silent movies, right? And then from silent movies, we're completely changing too much uh, animation and, and different types of productions. And yeah. that now we see some int interesting digital world and everything else. So it's great to put out also um, the history and somebody who grew up in Brooklyn, I'm sure, um, that was not easy for you, uh, specifically uh, during that time. Do you mind sharing a little bit about your childhood and those early days before you jumped into the movie industry and anything that you feel like that really helped you to pivot and actually how did you get in? Because I'm sure so many people are dying to hear that. Um, well, I think, you know, instinct kicks in when you know, you have to survive, uh, or not everybody does. I'm grateful that I did. Um, as a child, I found myself wandering the streets a lot. Um, when I was in, I don't know, what age are you when you're in third grade? Second or third grade, what, seven? Seven or eight, yes. Yeah, so I think between those ages, I found myself wandering the street a lot. Um, and the situation at home was, was a little unstable and a bit, turbulent so i think my ability to use that experience on the street as kind of an adventure uh worked for me i was a clever boy and i figured out how to sneak on the trains the elevated trains and go to places like the coney island amusement park and escape into a world that made everything at home seem you know less real and that became the dominant reality the fantasy of the amusement park the roller coasters the spook houses just the all the uh, the fun house, the this endless facade of uh, of like a sideshow carnival with clowns and this laugh track of you know 
you know, just uh, hopeful possibilities within this world. So I bring this up because I feel many people are attached to this notion of culturism. Rob, what are you? Isabella, where are you from? What are you? And I say, I'm Rob. Yeah, but what are you? I'm a human being. Yeah, but where are you from? Planet Earth. So to me, culturism, the culture aspect to me is that experience in the amusement pool. Like that's my culture. You know, I relate to that as a, as a I wouldn't call it an ism. I wouldn't put that tag on it and limit it. I would just say that's what I identify with is genesis of my life. Where do I come from? I, to me, I might as well have been born in the Coney Island Amusement Park. Man, I was born in Coney Island Hospital. So Coney Island Amusement Park was what? Three or four blocks to the right. So there I was, born into Coney Island Amusement Park out of necessity because of a circumstance I had to deal with, maybe because of karma, maybe because of happenstance, who knows why, who cares? I grew up in a situation that was unsettling and I survived it. And I thrive on experiences like this, the adventure land that to some looking outside in would go, oh my God, you could have been killed on the train. You could have been abducted. You could have been molested. You could, any number of terrible scenarios could have manifest you know and so i guess i was very fortunate that i was able to move through this labyrinth and uh, i took some hits along the way like we all do but i'm not here to dramatize that or feel sorry for myself i simply am grateful that i was able to draw off that experience and make uh, a lot of lemonade you know so that's i love that's your attitude thank you for sharing that because i left cat up hence very often, a lot of people, a lot of lemons, and we can dwell on it. And I love your uh, examples here because uh, you, you, you take what is around and what is best. And as a survivor myself from very different circumstances, I can totally understand and relate to you in that way because uh, I ran into similar situations because we want to label, we want to classify. And when we exhaust that, we just cannot accept it. We're all, yes, human race, and we're all here in this together. But more to this is, is like, why is not my name enough? So uh, why that identity cannot be one that we really find commonality versus that we're constantly seeking and poking to find the differences, right? The illusion of difference and the grave is the common denominator. Absolutely, the birth and death. Nobody can escape just the way how we do it and what really in between happens. And some people use that as a tremendous gift and some of them actually miss it out, right? So well, it's the cosmic you know, spectacle and the illusions of difference definitely lend the Halloween element, meaning it's nice to dress up, you know, and pretend and believe that our neighbors and our brothers and sisters, whatever form they take, are somehow different than us so we can enjoy the specialness of our unique personality. And I get that. But I think when there's a forgetfulness in terms of the source of all things that links us together, that ultimately we have more in common, that what we think divides us, that's the problem. It can be when we forget the source meaning that we all bleed the same color. You know, we're all breathing the same oxygen. We all rely on the same, you know, uh, elements and variables in this beautiful earth that has been, you know, put through some changes, uh, no benefit of humanity. Um, so, you know, once you realize it and bring it down to the, you know, to the, uh, bring it to a common denominator, you got to get real with the universal experience on that level. 
and I mean, you don't have to, I do. And so I think, but my point being that it's also nice to have fun, like Halloween, put a costume on, you know, I'm Robert, you're his, we play roles, man. What did Shakespeare say? All the world is a stage. So I get it. It's not like, oh, let's all become Zen Buddhists and just transcend everything and nothing exists. Because, you know, then where's the catharsis? Where's the art? Where's us experimenting with duality so that the creation can look at itself in a separate form and puppet master various spectacles that seem to be different from one another. That creates the idea of the show or is the show. But we can't forget that we're still, it's all one. It only seems separate. And that's, I think, the grave or this idea of death kind of pulls everybody toward the same gravity field, whether they like it or not, and has to come to have to come to terms with mortality. Movies and mythology give the illusion of permanence because they seem to last for a while. And so you can project an ego into a character and that character will linger on. So it, it can pacify the ego's fear of death by creating an avatar and moving that avatar around in the fictional world, and it's nice. But I think anybody who ultimately ultimately challenges himself to see beyond the curtain realizes that even that has a shelf life. And so um, the costumes are fun, the play is necessary, clearly, because what are we doing here otherwise? Um, I, but it's important to remember, once again, I use this word source, you know, the source of all things, you know, and uh, yeah. That is so deep and profound and thank you for going uh, on that level because uh, one of the things that I actually just recently published uh, through Forbes was uh, what connects us instead of what divides us. And I love that you actually immediately went there, which is four things that no matter of language, culture, barriers, because 96% is nonverbal communication anyway. But if we want to talk about it, let's talk about how we bring those emotions, how we use the art of music and creativity and film. And irony from four key elements, no matter where we are globally, four things that always connect us. It's food, it's music, it's film, and of course sports. So you already play so heavily in most of those two areas, but I also know through just being in New York and experience phenomenal restaurants and food and then being in California and being in LA, how nice conversation and discussions and opportunities just could happen by allowing for us to try something else from the source, from different types of uh, ethnic groups from different cultures as well as the music and that's why every movie that we look at why we're so emotionally engaged because it's phenomenal creativity behind it great play great, great words great music but more than anything great craft great acting so do you mind sharing how did you start with that first role and how did you stumble upon was it conscious was it accidental or was combination or or how and you end up in the movie industry well the creative aspect was brought to my attention by teachers who felt that i had a proclivity for the uh, the craft of uh, theatrics you know i had yeah. an, uh, i had an english teacher in junior high school god i wish i could remember her name because she changed my life but anyway um angels appeared um she recommended that i audition for the high school for performing arts in a city in new york city back in the the day 
uh, that was a public school that allowed inner city youth, youth, inner city kids to audition. And uh, they had several vocations in theater, dance, and music. So there'd be 2,000, there would be, you know, 2,000 applicants, 2,000, I can't speak today, 2,000 applicants would audition per year and they would accept 70. So needless to say, the competition was a bit stiff. And I was nervous at the idea of it because I didn't see myself as, a, you know, running around uh, on the stage doing anything, just on the street, you know, because that was my stage and that was my drama. Um, and that's how I dealt with a lot of the aggression that I carried with me through childhood because of all sorts of things that people carry, especially young men. Um, but the stage turned out to be, I use this word again, a catharsis, a, a way for me to deal with a lot of the feelings and issues within the structure of a playwright. You know, and, and, and uh, what I realized through reading these plays that I wasn't so unique, that everyone has a story and it's sorted. And, it, and in these stories, you discover feelings that you thought you were the only one who experienced these feelings. So when you put them up on the stage and you experience that, it's a way to free yourself. At least it was a way for me to, to exercise those feelings and to also come to terms with them and to do something, keyword, constructive rather mm -hmm. than destructive. So I think my English teacher in uh, junior high recognized that I was potentially going in a path that might be not too helpful, and so she insisted that despite my reservations and insecurities that I still audition, and I did. Long story short, I auditioned two, I prepared two contemporary monologues, which was what re was required. I auditioned and I was accepted, I got in. And that started the, the, the course, so to say, the, the curriculum, that, you know, that was the commitment. I had to show up to class and study, Stanislavski, uh, they call it the method, Stanislavski method. And I met a great teacher who became my friend and a, a surrogate father, Anthony Apeson, who um, was instrumental in my life at that point. So to answer your question, to sum it up, the creative was presented to me based on something I was doing that I was not aware of. And I was guided by teachers too. One an English teacher in junior high, another teacher in high school that continued to help cultivate that ability into something that hopefully would bl blossom and help transcend the old tendencies that were kind of locked in a conflict that I've been carrying for too many years. Wow, that is so powerful. Again, I, I always see similarity, how often pivotal role models, mentors from teachers, educators, or, or, or people that we meet, um, not by accident and for sure, that take interest in us or recognize where we are and know where, what, what we need in order to use uh, that as a fuel for something positive, something that's going to help us to propel, but also recognizing the skills and talents and potential that we have. So that is beautiful, and I'm glad you acted upon that. Well, the difficult, if I can interject, the difficulty is, and it's a sad thing, is that not all kids are told these things. I was very fortunate to be even told these things. I um, agree with you. I totally agree these, with you. Yeah, if, 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 if uh, the reinforcements are negative and 
a philosophy is built on, you know, built on self-loathing because the, the so-called caregivers are so conflicted themselves that they can't see night from day. They pass on that confusion to their kids. And, you know, it's nobody's fault, ultimately. It's just the process, man. But that process of evolution can be very... Uh... And so um, it's important that certain people show up in key points in life to guide, because if not, then you're left with the voice that you realize in retrospect, maybe when you're behind bars or God knows where, that's not your own, that you've been listening to, to tell you, hey, do it, do this, go this way, do this. You're hearing things and you identify that voice with you, but then you realize to your, to your horror that it wasn't your voice. It was what you were trained to believe about yourself. And then people come along to go, no, I'm going to untrain you to see a landscape that is auspicious and communicates splendor and other things that you have not been taught about life in yourself. So I'll take you out of the nightmare and place you in a more pleasant dream. That is, again, very, very powerful and very, very true. We all can stumble upon a lot of uh, things in life. And just because, again, wrong influencers or knowledge or information, our lack of those can truly change the landscape. But the best part is, as soon as we know something, we can't undo it anymore. We can't do it anymore old ways. And as a result, those major breakthroughs occur. And I'm right with you because society-wise, society we focus way too much on negativity and things that happened prior 10, 20, 30 years and in front of us right now is completely different person. And it's unfair to judge or look at through that perspective, specifically when you see exponential growth of someone and trying so hard as well as amazing, amazing results. And I agree with you, we need more role models. That's why my passion is leadership because we actually need more leaders, leaders that will hold uh, themselves accountable as well, others to lift other people up instead of put them down and uh, put a lid on top, you know, so that people cannot either grow or start believing, as you said, the old story and old paradigms that are not any longer true. So with that in mind, what was your first paid role, either film or series? Where did you start it first? Um, I was discharged from the U.S. Navy in 1985. Okay. And during the time away in the military, I kept in touch with the teacher I mentioned, Anthony Apeson. And uh, he insisted that I um, stay positive and not forget that there were other things for me to do that involved creativity. And so after I was discharged, I reconnected with Anthony Apes. I studied with him privately and got reacquainted with the craft. Uh, I, he introduced me to a man at the time who was the coordinator at the Actors Studio in New York City. His name was David Heislip. And David at that time was the, uh, he, uh, he, he was in charge and of the Working Observer Program amongst other things he was doing there. And I was invited into that situation because of my relationship with Anthony. So I built sets, I cleaned bathrooms, I swept steps so I could view legendary performers and uh, show business figures basically work out in a kind of private scenario, you know, circumstance that only certain people were allowed to view. Uh, so that got, definitely got put the hook in me. 
to meet people that I've watched and idolized throughout the years on the screen suddenly materialized right before my life. And they were also, you know, um, they were uh, instructing each other in scene study in various aspects of that curriculum. So it was really interesting to see them work out. It's like watching, you know, heavyweight champion of the world train at the gym and you're an aspiring fighter and you're like, wow, this is amazing to watch the greats spar together. So that definitely got it rolling in terms of uh, the, the cool factor, I guess you could call it, the excitement factor, and just meeting these deities and watching them come to life like that and step off the screen before me made me think, well, maybe it is possible what my teachers have suggested that if I work hard and I believe in the faith of this thing, like embrace the faith of this practice and dedicate my life to it, take it serious, that I could find myself participating in what the creative aspects of it suggest, not what Hollywood has trained people to believe, but what I could experience and with whom I could experience those, um, you know, credible moments of celebration through an art form that I clearly had an affection for. Uh, the more I dove into it, the more I felt the sense that, wow, this feels good. Like when you put on a pair of clothes or, you know, a suit that fits right or a pair, wow, this feels good. I, it's like a second skin, right? It's like no yeah. question about it that you're in the right place and the right time and with the right opportunity. So that, yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, so to bring it up to date then, so a uh, lot of time spent at the actor's studio. Mm -hmm. For the first year I was discharged out of the military, I studied at the Stellar Atlas Conservatory for a while there, kept studying with Anthony privately, and then I started auditioning. I uh, found an agent, or an agent found me, and then uh, I went on the laborious task of what seemed like an endless, uh, <laughs> an endless uh, queue of uh, auditions from hell. Uh, because, and I say that uh, in, in a facetious way because you have to, Please keep in mind that when I was auditioning in the 1980s, that tattoos were not cool. Acceptable. They, they were not part of the norm. They were not acceptable. And which, and I, so, which we want to get back to that to two uh, craft. Okay, please. You're right. Well, so how do you fit with, with, the, with the sterile environments where, where is expected people to be only in certain way, right? Well, I'll tell you. I'll, I'll answer the question specifically so I don't bore the audience to death. So, Despite the, the obvious obstacles that I was facing, I auditioned for Marion Doherty, who was the uh, vice president of casting for Warner Brothers at the time. Her assistant was name was Glenn Daniels, and they were seeing actors from New York and L.A. Uh, to cast a film starring Richard Pryor called Moving. So I went in on the audition. I read for Glenn Daniels. He liked my audition. I got a call back. I met with Marion Doherty. I read for her. She liked me. She liked what I did. I got another call back for them to put me on videotape because back then they used a traditional videotape uh, apparatus. <laughs> and so they videotaped me. Um, they sent the video to LA for the director and the producers to watch it. So I found out from my agent that I was in contention. I was in, I was in line being considered with several other actors for that role in that film. So I was a little excited and also very nervous because, you know, it's nerve-wracking. Competition. Competition. Are they going to choose you? I can understand that. All the above. So anyway, then uh, 
the producer and director flew in from LA and I was called back to meet with them. And so I had to go in once again to read for the director and the producer. I read for them, I left and I waited. Wow. Seems like I've been waiting a long time. But anyway, I got the phone call and my agent said, guess who's going to Hollywood? I said, who? <laughs> Yay! I got a contract with Warner Brothers, three month contract. Uh, worked with wow. Richard Turner, one of the most endearing men, greatest experience I've probably had to date. As far as a humble, caring, insightful, sensitive man who whispered some things to me that I needed to hear that changed my life. That is amazing story. So thinking outside of the box, willingness to do 30 work just to be there and present, but also understand that every exposure and opportunity, even if it's a cleaning bathroom or floors, will give you a chance to get closer to your dream because you're learning and you're improving yourself and you're trying to make your path forward. That is brilliant because a lot of times people see you accomplish so many great movies with great talent and prove yourself over and over. And everybody thinks was handed to you, right? Or was easy. A word, I'm sorry to interrupt, word comes to mind. Please. Gimmick. They look for the gimmick variable, the gimmick factor. So if they can find a gimmick, then what that does, it takes some of the pressure off of those who are not willing to take the risks, to lose face, to take the pie in the face, to sacrifice and do what Or to fail. Or to fail or be rejected. Well, because you have to have the muscles. Well, that's the pie in the face. That's, that's okay. <laughs> Got it. You, okay. you don't get, you go in, you don't, and so you lose face for a time. You walk around with a chicken, like a chicken with the head cut off, trying to reattach yourself and feel that despite these people not wanting to hire me, that's not indicative of my life journey. It's only one battle in a series of endless, endless battles in a great war, so to speak, of what? Conviction to something to prove that the war is what? The war is necessary. So my point is the gimmick factor, the gimmick variable, I understand it. Like I get it, I don't hate on it. I understand for those who are not studied, who have been trained through media by poor decisions made by media and studios to allow certain creates, supposed creative scenarios or seemingly creative scenarios to manifest that aren't. They're just a, uh, something contrived, made up. That's, it's kind of like someone, the way to describe it, it's like either you know how to play the piano or you don't. Now, I could place someone in front of a piano and put a camera on and lay a track over that and make it appear as if that individual knows how to play the piano. So what I'm saying is, is that there are moments and have been moments, I think, where the people that want to gimmick others off, including myself, may have witnessed something that suggests that the person playing the piano does not know how to play the piano. So they think, well, if they can do it, I look good, put me in front of the piano. I can act like I play the piano too. I don't really know how, but I can pull it off as if I do because they did it with that guy or that person, this female, whoever. So when you set a standard like that or you lower the bar, as an industry and you allow people who don't know how to do certain things and say don't worry about it through special effects and all types of other apparatuses we will manipulate it to create the illusion that you do mm. then people start to go oh gimmick 
then I can do this too. So the idea of ability, all these things become negated. There's, there's a, they start, people start second guessing it. Mindset. No, it has nothing to do with ability and everything to do with who you know, looking a certain way, being at the right place at the right time. Now, granted, some of these, some of this formula does apply. But what separates, I think, the, separates this journey in terms of longevity has a lot to do with one endurance and your ability to transcend those that formula. Because after a while, luck may get you in the door. The gimmick may get you in the door. But something else has to keep you in that room. Meaning you have to be able to do something and manifest something in terms of what the script, the writing, the disposition of character requires so that when people watch it, they are entertained by it, whether it's the producer, the director, the casting director, the DP, the director, photographer, all the audience members that make up the set that are also ticket buyers and connoisseurs of entertainment. If they go, wow, whoa, and they're intrigued to want to see more, you've achieved the task by manifesting something that's potentially marketable because you are entertaining them. You've taken them out of themselves. So now you can take the bow, so to speak, of fishing, if you catch my meaning. Absolutely, that is brilliant and, and very, very powerful um, because we often forget that, as people would say, fake it till you make it, you know, and, and that fakiness continues, but you don't add and fuel more with the craft and, and other skill. And I love what you said also, just like, just because they're able to bypass certain talent, uh, sooner or later if you are not having something else to bring to the table you're gonna not be able to survive so very very powerful um if you don't mind sharing now uh obviously you you expanded a little bit about that first role uh but you got immediately into full feature movies or some series and and i'm seeing your tenure over the years obviously and i'm curious what do you like more movies or series years ago when I was more naive, because I'm still naive, we're all naive, uh, but I was a lot more naive. I believed, I think, in something uh, that probably resembled a commercial type of experience, whether it was movies and television. As I had more experiences or hands-on situation manifest before me, uh, I came to realize that there were certain limitations that were gonna be placed on me because of the perception of what my appearance suggested. Um, but, and, no, not but, and when I first started, it was exciting to be flying around in a helicopter, in a UE, you know, some you know, military helicopter on a series called China Beach. No one maybe knows what that is or remembers, but in the 80s, there was a hit show called China Beach. It was, I had a recurring role on this show and despite what the tattoos suggest, the producers liked my audition and they worked with this physical and they allowed me to play a soldier with some responsibility, intelligence and insight and developed a character somewhat that had three dimensions, wasn't a caricature. And so that was fun. So I had moments periodically throughout the early stages of the career that afforded me by chance, some really great experiences, you know, and I'm, I'm grateful for them. So I'm not bitter 
I'm actually really, as I recall this stuff, because I've forgotten a lot of it, I found myself in situations having a really good time with people that were nice to me and saw ability and weren't too concerned about what it looked like. They just saw ability. Um, so that, you know, a lot of good times and great situations, both in television and in movies. But if you ask me now, and if you ask me now, in retrospect, I would say, if you say, Robert, in this moment, in 2020, which do you prefer based on what you're observing right now? I would say film, not television. Could you elaborate a little bit more why? Yeah, it's actually very easy. I've noticed that with film, in my own case, not in general, I'm not speaking for everyone else. I'm of just course, from your perspective and your experience, absolutely. My experience, what I've learned and noticed is that there's much more opportunity for character development in independent film situations in, in the last five years for me than there's ever been before. And I think it's partially due to the social phenomenon of tattoos being so trendy, acceptable, and just cool now, that it's not so shocking to see someone walking around with a lot of tattoos on the big screen, on a little screen, or in any number of scenarios, because human beings, or, no, not, how do I reframe that? There've been several decades now of various types of communication and the need to express oneself in a tribe, in a collective, in an independence, whatever it is, whether it's through gender, through gender, through sexuality, through the tattoo, whatever form it takes, there's been this explosion of that experiment, you know? And I think people, some people in Hollywood or people in industry recognize the importance of you know, showcasing that, exploiting it, whatever they do with it. So my point is that because there's been so much of this, um, I won't say circus, that's probably not the right. It is kind of a circus though, <laughs> because a circus is a combination of various acts. You know, you have all these different people, you've got the trapeze, you know, the flying trapeze, you got the tightrope walker, you got all these people doing exactly, doing these kind of extreme, exaggerated acts, man. So in a sense, it is a circus, right? So in the circus, they go, wow, how can we, how can we exploit this? How can we sell these characters that are already manifesting in everyday life? Because young people or people in general are now doing things that suggest a paradigm shift in, you know, in all sorts, all areas of, of, of life experience and in interpersonal relationships, in their gender, et cetera, right? So because of this experiment and this kind of liberated awareness, so to speak, that allows so much to, to be tried, uh, I'm kind of, uh, you know, I'm old hat, man. I'm like a square. <laughs> you know, I'm pretty, pretty boring compared to what some of these younger people are experimenting, experimenting with. And you know what? I salute them for being courageous enough to say, hey, man, this is me. Dig it. Check it out. Love it or leave it, you know, whatever. And so in a sense, to some degree, Hollywood has taken that and utilized it. And because of that, I think independent filmmakers who are raised, a lot younger than me, who are raised in these generations of this explosion of anything goes, 
look at me and see an opportunity to communicate something in a story that wouldn't have been allowed decades ago because it was considered uh, an anthem, a curse, a pariah. Ooh, we can't let that beast out of the cage do that. We can't put this man with this woman if that man looks this way and this woman looks because that way. Because of the stereotypes and conservative approaches, and now it's like a lot of things normalized and allowed to express ourselves in so many different ways. And you mentioned multiple times tattoos, Robert. So I just want to ask you, do you mind sharing the story behind the tattoos? How did you start with your first tattoos? And, and I know you have amazing, beautiful artwork uh, and, and people admire and appreciate it. And I know it's very painful to get tattoos. So do you mind sharing what they represent to you? And when did you start expressing your emotions, what you internalize through the body work that you accumulate over the years? I was 17 years old. I was in Brooklyn hanging out with uh, my friends who were a bit rebellious. Now I won't even say rebellious. They were just being themselves and they were frustrated and they identified with a practice and a ritual of tattoo that created this no bullshit bond that we shared because you couldn't like put it, it's not a t-shirt, man. It's not a Sons of Anarchy vest. Once you put the tattoo on, it doesn't come off. And when you put it on, during a timeline when it's not cool, when it's not popular, and it's not a Sons of Anarchy t-shirt, when it's basically telling the world, I don't really care, and I'm not gonna participate in your game, and I'm gonna stand outside of it because I'm already outside of it. I was born outside. I'm not gonna try to become inside. I'm not in the inner circle, I'm in the outer circle. So the tattoo is a symbol, or was a symbol, was a symbol. Mm -hmm of those of us who stood outside and still stand outside, not because of the tattoo, but because of our thinking and how we vibrate, how we manifest in that existence in that timeline. And it was a way for us to recognize each other, man, in a world that recognized conformity and banker mentality and, you know, a certain conventional structure that I'm not saying there's anything wrong with conventional structures, man. If it works for you, right on, knock yourself out. For those of us that that box feels like a prison cell, then we can't live in that box. And from birth, we were kicked out of the box anyway. So why go back into a box that has serpents in it that are just biting you all the time? So going back into the coffin makes no sense. So the tattoo was a way to liberate oneself from that um, encroachment, that sense of stifling, and to stand up against what people call, you know, we're standing up against the man, you know, we're going to challenge authority. Well, it was our way to really do that. And for me, I just carried it on right into the military. I did four years in the Navy. Everywhere I went overseas, I found a tattoo parlor, man. And put... Wow. So yeah, I know. some of them are international work. Do you mind sharing some countries you've been yeah. uh, through the Fiji. military? Yeah, Fiji, uh, Fiji Islands, Indonesia, New Caledonia, uh, Australia, Africa, uh, Brisbane, Australia, yeah, whatever that was, that's in Australia, uh, the Samoan Islands, um, Japan, Philippines, yeah, a few places. 
Wow, that, that's yes. awesome. That's awesome. Some people collect souvenirs in a different ways and you collected a piece of art that is permanent and it's defining who you are. What's one of your favorite tattoos or, or one of the pivotal moments that you continue embracing when you start adding more tattoos that you said? And I love what you said. I don't want to be boxing. I'm, I'm, I'm a free agent here. I have a body and mind that I wants to be exploring my potential in a way that means sense to me. And as a result, today, this is who I am. You develop relationships with tattoo artists. I did in the military. When I was stationed in San Diego, my ship was based out of San Diego. It was ported out of San Diego is a better way to frame it. And I would go downtown San Diego, hang out with bikers who were tattooers back in the day. They weren't like they were now. They were kind of radical guys, rode motorcycles and pretty dangerous types, but they liked me. So it was a surrogate family for me. And so I like to just hang out with the tattooers and get tattooed by them. And it was a sense of camaraderie, like it was when I was a teenager. So I kept finding brethren mm -hmm. in terms of what the tattoo suggested in that camaraderie, because it still was an, an anthem. It was still a curse. It was still, ooh, you're doing something. But I wasn't doing it to offend anybody. If anything, I was working through some stuff, right? So you say, what image makes sense? What's your favorite? I go, I don't know if I have a favorite, but I, will, I do have a memory of being on board ship out at sea. And I remember going to Washington State, getting a tattoo here of a face, a gargoyle. And then I remember having another tattoo done on my stomach of some kind of a bat creature, or a, a combination of a bat and a, 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 a bat and a lion or something. And it was black and it was crawling and had its claw coming. I thought, okay, I got, how do I connect these two? Now? How do I put these two together? How do I create this expression coming out of my heart, out of my stomach, out of my gut that reflects this thing I'm always dealing with? What can I come up with? So I started thinking, all right, well, the face needs a body, right? So I made a body. <laughs> I drew, I sketched out a body, you know, I was on board, I'd have, on ship, I'd have a lot of time, so I took a pencil and I was sketching. So the face, there was a body. And then what's the body coming out of? The head of a skull, yeah. So there's a skull now, and the skull has a mouth. And maybe the bat lion monster's coming out of the skull's mouth, man. So that's like me, man. That's my spirit trying to get loose into the world. Not to do anything nefarious or bad, it's just, you know, it's something that builds up. It's a, it's a feeling. It's a, a way to, you know, when thunderstorms happen, right, and lightning strikes, and Mother Nature's doing its thing. That's not bad. It's just thunder and lightning, man. So I had a lot of thunder and lightning that needed to like come out of myself, out of my, out of the flesh. So there's my thunder and lightning. You know, bam, bam. You know, boom and lightning bolt, right? So that was pretty cool, and is cool because it's it's reflective of a spirit. The imagery, back in the day, we didn't have the kind of artwork y'all have now with the tattoos and stuff. It's not perfect. It was imperfect. So it was kind of cool to have all this imperfection that communicated a subtext that wasn't about it being a perfect tattoo, but it being the perfect tattoo for you. That is beautiful because we're so much pushing hard to be accepted and perfect for stereotypes that others expect, but then we're miserable and there's nothing to do with our core and who we are and permission just to allow yourself and go there and be daring. That is so beautiful. I'm so yeah, glad well, that's, you touched on that. One is, one is superficial in a nutshell, yep. what you said. One is superficial 
one I dare say is spiritual, man, because we were trying to hang our physicals on the wall. We weren't trying to make an altar to our physicals. We were saying we're not so hung up on our physical that we're worried about what we're going to do. Because people say, oh, my God, how could you do that to yourself? What are you doing to yourself? You're going to get old one day. You know, so it, from the point of view of ego, it's a nightmare because for those who are very uh, attached to what they think they are as a body, anything that can compromise that appearance and its perceived perfection in terms of what the mirror reflects or what society deems worthy is a nightmare if you mess with that because then you become a social pariah, you're cast into the land of misfit toys and consigned to to you know insanity and, and ugliness right now this idea of ugliness is cool right in the sense that anybody can express anything they want as long as they have enough people with signs walking down the street and that's beautiful man right on i ain't knocking i'm just saying that you have spiritual superficial on one side you have spiritual on the other meaning that we were hanging off physicals hanging out to dry we were saying you know what the body is gonna die one day the flesh is going to deteriorate. So, what, so someone said to me, I was down south and some guy in boot camp, or no, was it boot, some drill instructor with his heavy southern accent said, Robert, hey, Robert. Hey, uh, Robert, yeah. Uh, hey, you know, if God wanted you to have all them damn tattoos, you would, you know, you would, you know, you would have been born with them. And I said, sir, I said, no disrespect, but I think God kind of left it up to me to decide, you know, and he got real quiet. And <laughs> gave me I love so, it. That is a great answer, actually. That's fantastic. So we were saying goodbye to the attachment to the body, meaning that we're going to decorate and conformity. And, yeah, well, because if the perception of the collective is that to do that is not a fashion statement, it's the opposite, then what does it suggest? The act. When you live in a time, though, when it becomes the fashion statement, there's nothing dangerous about it anymore because now the agreement that it's okay. The agreement is it's okay. When it's not okay, then you run up against judgment. You run up against the panel of jurors that roam the earth, constantly condemning each other through families, through mothers, matriarchs, patriarchs, condemning their children to cursed lands because they're doing something that disgraces either the tribe, the religion, the belief system, whatever. So you can't do that. You can't do very, that. Very, so, very when true. You, so when you're allowed now to do it and it's celebrated, the dangerous element is removed. The tiger no longer has any teeth, no longer has any claws. So I'm but saying- I'm to lose the value and the purpose why we're doing what we're doing. Because it's a different purpose. It's a different purpose. Absolutely. Because anyone looking at this who's younger than me could go, man, why is he dissing our experience? I'm not. It's a different experience now. I'm because relating it's a different to, purpose why you do it, started doing it and was part of your transformation. Well, and, that's and my timeline. I'm living in. I'm talking about decades of transformation. I will thank the young people and a lot of the artists that have tattooed me in the recent past who reflect the generation I'm talking about. I'll say, Rob, brother, thank you for being courageous enough to show up in that idiot box and let them play this game around you that has nothing to do with who you are and everything to do with how they perceive us. Thank you for championing us despite the constant disrespect slaps you've taken for us, 
even though I wasn't doing it for anybody, I did it for the love affair I had with the art form. So take the gimmick and you can throw that away because people say, well, he's got a lot of tattoos. Hmm. I bet he gets a lot of those rules because of his tattoos. And I would say, check this out. You know how many auditions I went to where I lost roles because of the tattoos? I'll give you a case in point. We'll go back in the timeline. You asked me about the early experiences of films and television movies. Some of the agencies that represented me at that time that were very powerful agencies in terms of who they could link me to said, Rob, listen, here's the deal. We get great feedback on you when you go on these auditions, but here's the problem. Here's the, here's the punchline. As soon as they see your tats, mm. they say, here's the deal. His talent is more visible than the majority of the people that come in. The problem is that when he takes his shirt off, we can't work with that. So they say, we can't hire him. So my agent said, look, well, agents said this, which they're kind of like, they become a firing squad at that point. And you don't know if there's bullets in the gun or not. You're hoping that there isn't, but sometimes there are. So you got to walk softly while they're holding them guns on you. And they said to me, Robert, have you considered laser surgery? Like maybe lasering half of your arm off, lasering. And I thought, well, I thought about burning myself up in the fire, but like I've already been burned up in a fire. Like what you're witnessing is me burning up in my own psyche, man. Like that's me dealing with rage and dealing with all sorts of insanity. You're asking me to cut an arm off face. No, 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 that's not what we're asking you to do. Don't personalize. We're simply asking you, if you can remove some of this, this, this stuff, you'd be amazed how many offers would come your way. I'm talking like, you know, back when I had hair and I was you know, kind of cute. They said, you could play a leading man. It's so cute and handsome. Thank you. So what they were saying was, you could be a movie star, not a character actor. And there's a crossroads coming, bro, where you got to make a choice on this because you're going to get older and you're not going to look the same. So if you take them tattoos off, mm. we promise you that you're going to be raised to another station and you're going to be your mind's going to be blown in terms of what the industry will allow you to do and your whole career is going to shift to the positive i couldn't embrace it it felt like betrayal to me so i'm speaking to those who think the look has provided me with opportunity and i would say yes and no what it, it has provided me with an opportunity to have casting directors over the years say to me excuse me the messenger entrance is out around back. And I'd be like, excuse me, Miss Casting Director, Mr. Cast, I'm not here to deliver a package. So it's provided me with opportunity to be disrespected by small-minded people back in the day. Now, as the mind expands and people are more forgiving of this, they've allowed me to show up and do more things, but they still have issues because there's still a disconnect. So what it's done is it allowed me to be exploited for many years. And some would say, well, you should have thought about that before you got the tattoos. But I wasn't thinking about being a celebrity. I wasn't thinking about being a famous actor. I wasn't even thinking about being a working actor. I was simply enjoying something I like to do. A couple of things I like to do, which is to be on stage, do my thing, right? Absolutely. Break down, do a character analysis, study a play, read Tennessee Williams, read the great plays like man and superman read these incredible works of literature but then also there's other forms of literature in terms of artwork that i was tattooing on me other thing i like to do was to experience artwork in my skin man so that was so, so some would say well you're going to be penalized now because you're not allowed to have that hobby and then expect to do this too 
And I said, okay, so where do I pay my dues to bear the sin that you're accusing me of? Because I'm talking about not people in general, I'm talking about the industry that laid down the law to me about what I had done to myself, casting directors who are a bit light on their feet with saying, Robert, you know, you kind of did it to yourself. I'm like, what did I do to myself? Man? I expressed myself. So you're saying to me that because I express myself, I should be punished. And the punishment then is to show up in a series of mythologies that you are writing or people like you are writing to continue to punish me based on an idea that this communicates something demonic or evil or disgusting or uh, prim primalistic, kind of like, you know, from the jungle, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Something barbaric. So you, so I under, so that's what it provided me an opportunity to move through the murky waters to, of judgment, come up out of that water, still breathing, and say, I'm going to keep swimming here, man, despite what the current is trying to take me. And then I meet some people that say, you know what, Robert, you're going to play a general in our movie. You're going to play uh, a teacher. You're going to play uh, you're going to play a, a, the guy, the, the, the boyfriend. You're going to play a, a sympathetic character that saves somebody else's life. So, but prior to that, what it didn't do for me was it didn't allow me to move down a course and highway that most people call success. So some people say, well, the tattoos has afforded him a, a career. I'd say it afforded me an opportunity to be humiliated. What it, what it didn't do, or not, what it, and what it also did was prevented me, based on their thinking, to move down a, a road that would allow me to manifest my actual ability and not lock it up in a cell next to Charles Manson and deem me devil, the killer of all time that's going to kill everything. And every time we let him out, he's going to do a, a dark deed because that's what we associate around him. That has nothing to do with me and everything to do with an idea that was projected onto me based on a belief system that someone else believed that trans that passed that on from generation to generation. So I would say there is no gimmick. There is trial and tribulation to be experienced that I have. And I do because I love the art form. So I've walked on down the road, taken the slaps, lost out on what people perceive as opportunities to burn my tattoos literally off my skin, to be reborn again into an idea that would make them feel that I'm more suitable for society. Wow. It's kind of funny wow. when you look at wow. our society now. <laughs> so that's why I didn't know what was coming. I didn't know that young people were going to tattoo themselves. I didn't know there'd be this explosion of Let's just let the body do what it feels like doing, man, with no judgment, right on. But I didn't know that that was coming. But I knew that I could not betray. Who you are and be anything else, of course. And I love that. I love that, that authenticity and, and going and blazing the paths that are authentic to you. Uh, but honestly, to be even when, when, when I'm listening, hearing, and sharing, even if you got those roles, and even if you confined or could use the special cover-up of tattoos or whatever, uh, working with the wrong people, it's still working with the wrong people who cannot absolutely accept you as who you are. They're not the right people to work with, bottom line. And, and that is also eye-opening to see how much we still have so much stereotypes and judgment in our culture, in our society, on so many levels, isn't it? Yes, 
and, and if I can speak to that, I think the Please. saving grace, the saving grace in those type of circumstances, kind of to me, synonymous or similar to what I observed with old black and white films when I would watch uh, tap dancers, these incredibly gifted men who would tap dance. They would set the stage on fire with their ability to tap dance, and they were African American, but because America was not willing to embrace them in that timeline. They put in front of them other performers like Fred Astaire, other people to champion the glory of an ability that they weren't allowed to claim and they were probably teaching him how to do that or giving him pointers on how to be better but weren't allowed to go up there and take a suitable bow. But despite the, the wall, that prevented them from being seen, they were seen, I saw them. And anybody paying attention to what's real and real ability saw it and was affected by it. So what I came away with is they can control what you say. They can't control ultimately your ability and what you think. Meaning if someone writes something for me in a script and the writing suggests a limitation, that doesn't mean that my performance is going to be limited because you can sit there just looking at me or do something within the course of 30 seconds and people will be captivated because of how you do it. Because how you're doing it speaks to what's going on in here and here. That's fascinating to watch because your mother just died. And you're trying to figure out how to organize something for a meeting that you have to go to and not flip out because you know if you don't go to that meeting, you're going to lose your job. Your kids depend on you, are depending on you. But your mother just got the word. Your mother just got killed in an accident. And now you're trying to figure out how to not lose your shit. Thank you for listening. This will be wrapped for our first part of the sharing on the Legacy Leader Show with our special guest. Stay tuned for part two. Cheers.